I'm happy to introduce you to our speaker this morning. We have with us this morning Dr. Dean Taylor. He'll be with us for three Sundays here in October and then two additional Sundays in November. He's going to do a short series in the book of Hebrews for us. He uh, is the a professor at Faith, and he is the chair of the Ministries Division and the Pastoral Training Department there at Faith. Um, before that, he just got there about two years ago, and before that, he was a pastor for 25 years in Indiana, Wisconsin, and South Carolina. Uh, his wife, Faith, of 32 years, is not able to be with us this morning, but she will be in some of the upcoming Sundays. We look forward to getting to know her as well. They have four children and two grandchildren, and um, I really was encouraged listening to Dr. Taylor. He was preaching during the recent state meetings we had here a couple of months ago. I was encouraged by his preaching, and I'm really looking forward to what he will bring for us from the book of Hebrews this morning. It's Dr. Dean. Good morning. Good to uh, turn around and look in your faces. I was blessed by worshiping with you and uh, praising God together, and uh, now it's good for us to turn to the Word together. And I really appreciate Pastor Kyle inviting me to come, not just once, but uh, several times, and spend this time with you and enter into your church's life uh, for a time. And it's a very critical time for you as a church, as you are in a time of transition and seeking God's direction for a lead pastor And the Word is extremely important for you during this time because it's the Word of God that nourishes the church and gives life to us individually but also as a body and uh, gives guidance to our lives and to the direction of the church. And so uh, the shepherd's voice, our, our great shepherd, our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, speaks through His Word to us. And we know His voice and we follow Him. And so it's important that the voice coming to us uh, is, is from the Word and following the Word. And so I take the responsibility very seriously. I'm honored that you would invite me to be part of this, and I thank you very much. Uh, I do look forward to having my wife with me soon. Uh, my mother lives with us, and she's 96 years old and needs some care, and so uh, my wife helps care for her. And then also uh, my wife is involved in speaking at some ladies' retreats, and some of you might have heard her at uh, the state retreat a couple of years ago. But uh, she'll be with me when she can, and I look forward to uh, having her here to meet you and you to get acquainted with her. And so we're very grateful for this opportunity. As I talked with uh, Pastor Kyle about the possibilities of what we would look at together, um, we prayed and and landed on uh, this focus on uh, the book of Hebrews and specifically the last part of the book of Hebrews. And uh, so I trust that God will use this to uh, nourish and strengthen you as individual believers and as a body Uh, during this time. So let's go together to Hebrews 10, Hebrews chapter 10, and the the name of the series is A Better Way to Live. There is a better way to live, Um, a better way than many people are living now, and maybe even better for you than the way your life is right now. Now, We think of a better life as being circumstantial. I want my health to improve. I would like my financial situation to uh, improve and be more secure or more comfortable. Um, we want relationships to be strong and, and secure. We think of the quality of our circumstances and our relationships when it comes to a better life. But the focus of Hebrews is something a little bit different. It's more focused on our relationship with God and the life that that produces in us. 
And if you have uh, read or studied the book of Hebrews very much, then you know that it emphasizes the supremacy of Christ and the superiority of Christ, especially as a representative between us and God as our high priest, and even as the sacrifice who takes our place and brings forgiveness of sins. So the the writer emphasizes Christ's supremacy and and his superiority. And then in the the last part of the book, he takes that foundation, that foundation of truth and, and doctrine, and then starts to make it practical for us and talks about how it affects our lives. So we'll start with some of that foundational truth, and then over the series of these messages, we'll lead into more of the practical elements of of how it affects our lives. And the way that all of this begins is with being close to God. So this better life that we're talking about starts with being close to God. And we'll talk more about that along the way, but just to help us understand it here at the beginning, being close to God, we we think of in subjective terms. Well, I, I feel close to God, or I can pray and feel like God hears me, or I can read the Bible, and I sense that God speaks to me, or I just have this kind of, kind of uh, awareness that everything's okay between God and me. And there is that personal element of it, but being close to God starts with your position in relationship to Him, with His acceptance of you, and your being in a right position related to Him. And so that's where it begins, it starts there. And I think there are some misconceptions about what it means to be close to God or, or how people get close to God. And these are thoughts that you might hear from friends or coworkers or fellow students or family members, or they might even arise in your own mind from time to time. And I think one misconception about it is, well, I've actually kind of given up on that idea. Some people, and again, thinking beyond this group here, but many times people that, that aren't necessarily connected to church or have thoughts of, of a right relationship with God might think something like, well, I've, I've gone too far. I've done too much. Uh, I'm away from God, and so there's really no hope for me. I've kind of given up on that. Well, can I tell you today that God hasn't? You may be in that situation. You may know someone who thinks that way. You've given up on the whole idea of ever being close to God, but God hasn't given up on that idea about you. And that's good to know. Or even as a Christian, you know, I've, I've tried. I try praying, and I'm inconsistent, and I try reading the Bible, and I don't feel like I get enough out of it or don't totally understand it. And, and I've tried being close to God. I've tried doing the things I think I'm supposed to do to be in that close relationship with God. And I've, I feel like I've, I've failed. I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm coming up short. And so, again, there can be this mindset of, of giving up on the idea Another way some people think is, well, I'm pretty sure God accepts me for who I am. And that's sort of the other end of of the spectrum, isn't it? Well, it doesn't matter uh, what I think or what I believe or what church I go to or uh, what I think the Bible means. uh, God's a God of love, and he accepts everybody. And another one that goes along with that is the idea of, well, we're all God's children, right? I mean, if he's our father, then, then he loves everybody, and why would he hold us out? Why would he you know, push us away? Why would he not embrace everyone? Uh, and this is kind of a sense of, of universalism. Um, and, and you run into this when, when people say something like, well, uh, that's what you believe, or that's your truth. So 
So you have your truth, and I have my truth, and we just all need to coexist and accept one another and not judge each other based on what we believe. That's the mentality that a lot of people have. And and that kind of leads to the, the last one. Well, you have your way, and I have mine. All religions or all beliefs basically are the same, and all paths lead to God. And don't try to persuade me from mine toward yours. Again, we just need to all kind of get along. Well, what do the scriptures say? That's the, that's the ultimate question, isn't it? And that's why we're here, is to understand what the Bible says about being close to God. I want to read for us our text today in Hebrews chapter 10. And as I begin reading, uh, this might be a little overwhelming because uh, the book of Hebrews is, is somewhat complex. But if you'll stay with me, I think as we talk about it, You'll gain a better understanding of it, and we'll, we'll talk about how it relates to us here today. So look at what the writer says in Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That's where the idea of, of being close comes from. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He, speaking of Christ, does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, if you look back in verse 1, you see he mentions the law. And we think of the Ten Commandments or the, all of the instructions that God gave to the children of Israel. And that's certainly included but what he's, what he's focusing specifically on here are the requirements that God gave to the children of Israel for the sacrifices that they would make and the, the way the priests would represent the people to God in offering those sacrifices. He's talking about the law related to that system of priests and sacrifices. And he's saying that those were a shadow They were a representation. They were not the real thing. He says they were a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form, the real thing of of these realities. And so what he's telling us here is that even people's best efforts cannot bring them close to God. Notice the the negativity he puts on this. He says, these can never make perfect those who draw near, those who come in worship, those who want to be close to God, those who are going through this process. Now, God had selected a man. 
His name was Abram. God changed it to Abraham. And God determined to show, out of his love, to show favor to this man and all of his descendants. And they were called the children of Israel. Israel was Abraham's grandson. So those descendants were called the children of Israel or the Jews or the Hebrews, as this book is called. And so God had chosen to show them favor, but from from Adam, the first man, all the way on, there was this problem of sinfulness. And God wanted those people to be close to him, wanted them to be able to draw near to him. And so he instituted this this system of priests and sacrifices to, to temporarily provide a way for their sins to be atoned for, all looking forward to the day when that one perfect sacrifice for sins forever would come, who we know as Jesus. And so so the Jewish people were obligated, they were responsible to go through this process. But even, even the process, even the system, sent a message to them. The fact that they had to do it repeatedly, and the Day of Atonement once a year, and the, the constant rotation of priests, and the, the hundreds and thousands of animals that were sacrificed, all sent the message that it was not enough. It was insufficient. And so that's what the writer of, of Hebrews is showing us here. And, and let's bring that forward to ourselves here today, because we're not worried about sacrifices and priests, most of us. We're not thinking about, okay, I'm going to go home today and I've got to make a sacrifice. We're not thinking that way, are we? So, so how do we think? Well, in our day, people do have the mindset that I've got to do something in order to be close to God. I have to follow some system. I have to perform some ceremonies. Or people just kind of, kind of lay it aside and say, well, I, I'm not worried about that. Nothing is needed. Nothing is necessary. Well, again, what do the scriptures tell us? Well, the point of of this text is that our efforts, any effort that we make to be close to God actually fails to qualify us for that. And that's what he means in verse 1 when he says, it can never, by those sacrifices continually offered every year, make perfect. The idea of being perfect here is being completely qualified to approach God. So regardless of how many times and how much people go follow those, those rituals and those ceremonies, those can never make them perfect. They can never completely qualify them to approach God. And why is that? Well, as you run your eyes down over the text that we read, you see at the end of verse 2, the word sins. You see again in verse 3, a reminder of sins. You see the end of verse 4, taking away sins. That's the problem, isn't it? The problem is that we sin against God. The problem is that we fall short of the mark of God's perfection, and we do so with how we act and the words that we speak and the attitudes that we have. In fact, I want you to hear how how David, King David, described what's required for us to be in God's presence. I mean, if you just want to pray, if you want to sing a song of worship, if you want to have conscious communion with with God, and even one day when you die, go to heaven and be with God forever. What is required? Listen to what David said in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. He said, who, he's asking the question, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, speaking of where the temple was located at that time, or who may stand in his holy place, 
And he answers the question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So who is it that can draw near to God? Who can come close to the holy God of heaven? The person who has 100% clean hands and a 100% pure heart. In other words, has never committed any sin, whether in action or even in thought or imagination or motive or desire. And you know what that does? That disqualifies every single one of us, doesn't it? Because none of us meets that standard, and we never, ever could. And again, since Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, every person has been disqualified. And so here is this system that God has put in place, and he, he did it to provide a temporary way that pointed forward to the perfect sacrifice, but he's saying, if you're continuing with that mindset, he says, that's insufficient. And he's writing primarily to the Jewish people because for many of them, they were coming out of that background of sacrifices. And, and, and he's saying, you know, you may have lingering thoughts or, or you may have concerns about your present relationship with God through Christ. He's saying, you don't need to worry about that because that system was inadequate in itself. In fact, there might be somebody here today and you've come out of a background of, of, of a, a system, a religious system that says that you have to follow rituals, perform ceremonies, do good works to be accepted by God. And the message comes to, to us here today, you know, we, we can't. None of us can qualify by any amount of works that we could ever do because none of us has that 100% clean hands and 100% pure heart. So our efforts fail to qualify us, but we also see in our text today that our efforts also fail to satisfy God. Now, in a minute, we'll talk about what he's doing here in verses 5 and 6 and 7. But, but notice just right away, about the middle of verse 5, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. And then in verse 6, burnt offerings and sin offerings, and those you have taken no pleasure. So what does God desire? What brings him pleasure? What satisfies him? He's saying it is not those sacrifices. In fact, this is interesting, those four terms burnt offerings, uh, sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings probably are four categories that cover all the types of, of offerings and sacrifices that the Jewish people were required to make. So he's, he's covering all the bases. He's saying none of them, and in fact all of them, if you do all of them, that is not enough to satisfy God. Why? I mean, certainly all of the blood that was shed, certainly all of the acts that were performed of devotion and worship and atonement before God would somehow take care of the problem of sins. He's saying, no, those don't satisfy. Those don't fulfill God's righteous demands. And why is that? Well, let me try to illustrate it. Uh, my wife's parents uh, one, one year gave us a very nice dining table uh, it had been theirs, and they didn't need it any longer, and so they passed it on to us. And that wasn't a formal dining table. It was more like an everyday dining table that you have in, in the kitchen eating area that the family all sits around every day and eats on. But it was, it was, it was very well made. It was solid maple. Uh, it's not the kind of piece of furniture you get and you wonder what's really you know, underneath that shiny surface. It starts to crumble. Uh, this was the real deal. I mean, this was solid maple, very good quality, very well made. And so we had that in our kitchen eating area, and our family ate around it, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner every day. And one day I was working on a project in the kitchen. I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it was hanging something on the wall, like a shelf or a, you know, frame or something. And I had my drill, 
and I needed to drill a hole in a piece of wood that was part of whatever I was hanging on the wall. So I put it down, I got my drill, and for some reason, I just had the thought that I could stop short. I could stop, you know, when I needed to. And I didn't have anything under that piece of wood, but I wasn't thinking, and this punched right on through and hit the table and realized it. You know, it's like, oh, no, what have I done? I just put a hole in my table. So I, you know, pull everything back, and yep, sure enough, there, there's probably about, a, I don't know, maybe a quarter of an inch deep, you know, hole from the drill bit there in the table. Oh, man, I've really messed this up. And so I thought, well, maybe I can use some filler, you know, and fill it, and uh, then some stain and kind of cover it up and blend it in and make it all match. And, well, you know, maybe a professional could have done that, but, but not this amateur. And, and so even though I tried to fill it, tried to cover it, that, that mark was still there and could not be removed. In fact, that was at my spot at the table. You know how you have your spot at the table, right? Well, every time I sat down, there it was, right in front of me. It's like, oh, man, I can't believe I messed up this table. No matter what I did, I couldn't restore it. I couldn't cover it. It was just there. And in a, in a similar way, that's what our sins do to our souls before God. They mark us. They mar us. We, the, the image that we're supposed to have inside of us is disfigured. We, we come short of perfection. We are not, and we, we cannot be what God wants us to be, what He, in His holiness, rightfully requires of us. And no matter what we do, no matter how much good we do, or how many ways we try to make up for it or cover it, it's still there. It doesn't go away. And God rightfully requires perfection for us to be in his presence, to be close to him now, and to be with him forever. And notice what he says again in verse 1. It can never, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, those, those animal sacrifices, and here he's probably referring to that once a year, day of atonement. The the biggest day of the year when they brought the sacrifices to cover their sins. And he says, it's impossible. In fact, notice backing up for just a second to the end of verse 2. He's saying there is still a consciousness of sins. And then verse 3, in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. They don't make the sins go away. And you know, if you're involved or you know someone who is part of a religious belief system that requires constant penitence, constant penance, constant actions to make up for sins. All they do is, is bring them back to your mind. All it does is remind you of, of those sins. So the sacrifices couldn't pay off the debt. They just kind of put it off for another year, like making a monthly payment on a huge loan and it stays and sometimes even grows as we charge more to that, that line of credit. That's the way it was for, for these Jewish people. It was merely pushing it forward, again, pointing toward the coming of Christ. So if, if religiously following a sacrificial system doesn't take away sin, then why would any of us think that our efforts can take away the sins that are between us and God? And the truth is, nothing that you or I can present will cancel the guilt, will erase the stain, 
will repair the damage, will remove the barrier between us and God. Nothing we can perform will compensate or balance it out. And again, think of, think of David. And here was a man who had committed some serious sin, hadn't he? In fact, he had committed adultery. He had even um, directed his, his troops to allow for, for Bathsheba, the woman he committed adultery with, to allow her husband to be killed in battle intentionally to be exposed so that he would die. So he was guilty of extremely serious sin. And he repented of that, didn't he? And he sought God's forgiveness. And listen to what he said in Psalm 51, verse 16. He says, you don't desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. He said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, These, O God, you will not despise. So what does God want? He doesn't want the sacrifices. What is it that he's after? A heart that is contrite, that is sorrowful for sin, that recognizes that we have placed this barrier between us and God. We have offended his holiness, and we are guilty before him. And it comes to him saying, I can't fix this myself. You must do this for me. Now we want to think about how how serious this is. When we talk about being close to God, we're not just talking about, well, you know, God will help me with my day. Uh, I've got problems and I can ask him to help me. Or I feel good about my relationship with God. I'm okay with God. He's okay with me. We're talking about something much more serious than just how we feel about God. Because if you can't approach God, it means that there's no prayer. I mean, you might say the words, but there is no guarantee or promise or hope that God hears that prayer. There is no peace. You're not at peace with God. You don't have the peace of God in your heart comforting you in difficult times. Really, there's no purpose. I mean, people go through life saying, well, I am you know, love my family and, and help other people and do my job and you know, hope everything turns out well, treat others the way I want them to treat me and come to the end of life, and that was kind of it. But, but apart from God, there's no eternal purpose, no, no abiding impact. And then there's no heaven, no heaven. In fact, a person who dies and is still separated from God is condemned and separated from God forever. Listen to the sobering words of Paul in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 through 9, talking about the future when Jesus returns, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. He says, if you're not close to God now by knowing him through submitting to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then in that day, God does not know you either. In fact, you'll be separated from his presence forever. Being close to God could not be more important in this life or for eternity. Now, this all sounds very negative, doesn't it? And I don't want us to have the wrong impression of God. He is holy. He requires obedience. He judges our sin, 
and that includes being separated from him now and forever if we die without Christ. But he's not pushing us away. In fact, he's inviting us in, and he's made a way. I have a brother-in-law, and he has kind of an interesting sense of humor, and he likes to um, give these gifts at Christmas time that just have kind of this very unusual connection to the person that he's giving them to, and sometimes it's just kind of kind of like far side. It's kind of like this weird, you know, humor, and and but but it's it's usually pretty funny. But my, my wife is is a wonderful hostess. She loves to have people in her home, and you know, just a gracious, very gracious and and hospitable. And uh, he knows that. And so one Christmas he gave her a gift, and she unwrapped and unrolled this gift, and it was a mat like you would put at your front door. But on the mat were the words in, in black capital letters, go away. So you know, it's kind of like, you know, a little bit of, you know, being a little facetious about, about her and the kind of person that she is. And so we didn't put it at the front door. We put it in the garage. It was actually a really good mat, like these thick bristles, you know. But uh, we put it in the garage. So, and, and, you know, we could be misunderstood. We, we could misunderstand what God wants us to know in a similar way. Uh, when we think of, of these truths. God isn't saying, go away. That's not his view toward us. No, in fact, he's, he's saying, come in. His heart is that he wants to make a way. And so the writer of Hebrews spells this out for us, and we see then in verses 5 through 10 that our efforts cannot bring us close to God, but only Christ's offering can. Christ's offering can bring us close, and only his offering can accomplish that. And there is a way that we can qualify, and there is an offering by which God is satisfied. And you see it beginning in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, speaking of Jesus Christ, He came into the world. Now this introduces some facts that we all need to know in order to be close to God. For some of you, you're going to say, check, I know that one. Yep, I got that one, and that's okay. Just be glad you do. Be thankful that somebody told you. And maybe be thinking, wow, praise God, I can rejoice and and be thankful that, that these are true in my life, that I have known and believed these truths. And you might even want to be thinking about somebody else that needs to hear them, because these are the truths that we need to tell our friends, aren't they? And it includes this, the fact that the infant Jesus was born. And when he was born, this was God's son becoming human. Now, let me, let me explain, go back and explain here verses uh, 5 and 6 and 7. The, the writer of Hebrews is actually quoting from one of the Psalms. He's quoting from Psalm 40. And a good way to understand this is to think in terms of Jesus the Son and God the Father having a conversation when Jesus is leaving heaven and being born as a human being. So it's like a conversation between the Father and the Son, and Christ, when he came into the world, verse 5, says he recognizes that those sacrifices, those offerings, those burnt offerings and those sin offerings did not qualify people and did not satisfy God, but a body, verse 5, a body you have prepared for me. What he's talking about is what we celebrate at Christmas. He's talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and God's plan for Jesus to become a man and the the miraculous conception 
of Jesus, the Son of God, when Mary conceived a child by the Holy Spirit's supernatural creative act as a necessary step in making this way, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on human form. He became a man. And this God-man, Jesus, himself was qualified as the Son of God, but he also became qualified as a human being. What's that talking about? Well, notice what it says here in verse 7. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And God's will did not just include, it definitely included Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, but it included Jesus' whole life. Remember, what do we have to do to be close to God? How do we get access to God? By having 100% clean hands, a clean life, and 100% clean heart, right? Imaginations and desires and attitudes and thoughts and ambitions that are completely pure. Nobody here has ever qualified, but there's one whose life was 100% pure and his heart 100% pure, and that's Jesus. He did the will of God. He performed everything that God laid out for him to do. He fulfilled all of God's laws, not only by his actions, but in his very heart. He was the perfect man. And so by being the perfect man, he earned the right as a fully obedient man to enter the presence of God, and he can represent us. And so he qualifies, and he can represent us. And this Jesus satisfied what God required as an offering for sin. Glance down to verse 10. And by that will meaning God's will for Jesus to become a man, to live a perfect life, to be sacrificed for our sins, and by Jesus fulfilling all of that will perfectly, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So in verse 6, he says, no pleasure. God has no pleasure in these offerings. In verse 10, he says, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ sanctifies us once for all. The other sacrifices were a shadow. This is the reality. Now back up to chapter 7 just for a minute. Hebrews chapter 7. It's interesting that some of you are studying Hebrews on Wednesday nights. And uh, what, what a rich, deep book. I mean, it's, it'll stretch your brain, won't it? But it's worth the, the study that goes into understanding it. And there's It's like a tapestry. There's just so many rich, rich threads in here. But one of them is the repeated emphasis on the one sacrifice of Christ for sins. So look at chapter 7, starting in verse 23. Chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. There it is, those who come close, those who want to be accepted by God. Through him, since he always lives, to make intercession for them. So there it's talking about his endless life. 
For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Now look at how he's described. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. That means not not like us as sinners. And exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then those, for those of the people. So stop there for a second. He was not a sinful human being having to make a sacrifice for his own sins. He did this once for all when he offered up himself, in contrast, the holy Son of God. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You can see how Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, qualified to to live a whole life that was pleasing to God, but then to die as our substitute, and by doing so, satisfied what God required for the offering for sin once and done. Once and done. Uh, A few months ago, my wife and I were at a bank, and we were meeting with one of the bank uh, employees, an assistant manager or something, about a financial transaction. And as we were talking with him, we sat down at his desk and kind of, you know, making small talk to get acquainted. And he says, so what do you do? And uh, so I tell him I was a pastor, and now I teach at a Bible college. And, you know, it's interesting in my role that a lot of times that generates conversation about, about God. And and sometimes people, it's like they feel like they have to say something to impress you. I, I don't know, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I know things about God or something. <laughs> and, and he said, he was sort of being funny, but he was also being serious. He said, you know, he said, uh, when I die, I, I think God's going to get out a list. And, and on one side of the list is going to be all the good things I've done, and the other side is going to be all the bad things I've done. And I think the good will be longer than the bad. And he just kind of stopped, you know. <laughs> so... And I know we talk about, as Christians, you know, on the inside, we talk about people that might think that way. Do you know people actually do? People actually think that way. Well, I'm going to do enough good things to outweigh the bad. And, you know, if there's a God and if I stand before God one day, I hope or I'm pretty sure the good will outweigh the bad. And if not, you know, God will kind of, you know, fudge a little bit and make it all come out even and, and say, oh, come on in, it's okay. And people do have that mindset. So I was sitting there, I was thinking, well, I could let that go, you know, or I could say something. And I thought, I said, can I show you something? And he said, sure. So there was a piece of paper sitting there between us that we were working on. I flipped it over the blank side, and I, and I drew a bunch of lines, and I said, so let's say these are all the good things you've done, and some more lines. These are all the bad things you've done. And, and okay, let, let's say maybe the, the, the good does outweigh the bad, but there's still bad. And, and those are marks against us, and God is holy, and he can't accept sin. So it really doesn't help us, even if the good does outweigh the bad. It probably never will, but, but these, there are still marks against us. These count against us. And I said, now let's think about Jesus. I drew a bunch of lines. Good, 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 good. No bad. I said, this is Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He was he was the only man to ever live a 100% perfect life. And then I drew a cross, and I said, you know about Jesus dying on the cross? He said, yes. I said, when he died on the cross, actually, our bad was put on him. And so when he died, he was dying for our sins to pay the price for them. And when somebody believes on Jesus, 
that, that's counted for you. So, so the bad things you have done are placed on him. And you see this list of all the good things Jesus did over here? Those are actually credited, remember we're in a bank, credited to you. That's the doctrine of what? Imputation. Our sin imputed to Christ, counted against him, and his good imputed to us, credited to us. He's like, oh, I says, that makes sense? Yeah. It didn't really go any further than that, but, but it gave him something to think about, didn't it? And see, that's how we have to view ourselves in relationship with God. We can never do enough good things that as much as we try, as religious as we might be, or as good as we think you know, we, we are, it doesn't matter. But there's one who did live that life that was perfectly acceptable to God. There is one who paid a price that fully satisfied God's wrath. And what we have done against God is counted against him. He bore our sins, and what he did as a man is credited to us, 100% perfect righteousness. And that's how you get saved, by believing and accepting that truth. And that's the beginning of this better life that, that we are talking about. And so, so th- this truth that we need to understand is, is that the way of God then is open to you. The way to God then is open to you. The door was closed and locked and barred. There was no entrance, but Jesus fulfilled every requirement, satisfied every demand, and he opened the door. Look at verse 10 again. And by that will, we have been sanctified. Will you just look closely at that word, sanctified, for a minute? In fact, the phrase, we have been sanctified, you might want to put your finger on it. I'm back in chapter 10 now, verse 10. And think about what that means. To be sanctified means to be made holy. To be set apart unto God and to be holy. So this word tells you a few things. First of all, it tells you that that's possible, doesn't it? That's possible. It it also tells you that this is something that happens to you. You can't do it yourself. This is called a passive voice. The action is happening to you. We have been sanctified. It doesn't say you become holy yourself. It's saying something makes you holy. And that's God. That's what Jesus has done for you. That's that's counted for you. God does that to you. And you don't necessarily see this in in the uh, English translation here, but the, the, the tense of this verb actually refers to a point in time in the past when this began and now is being carried out into the present. So there was a starting point. So there's a point in a Christian's life when you believe these truths, you accept them for yourself, and that's the beginning of your relationship with God. That's when you are brought close to God. So was there a starting point for you? Was there a time when you trusted Jesus to save you? Was there a day when you called upon him and you believed in him and you you accepted these truths as your own and stopped relying on yourself and turned from sin and embraced Christ and believed on him to be saved? If so, this is true of you. And one more thing this tells you is that that is an absolute certainty. Not because of you or anything you've done, but because of Christ. It's a promise. It's a truth that you can claim. And some people struggle. Am I saved? Did I say the right thing? Did I mean, mean it when I prayed? And we struggle with that. We need to make sure that we're saved. 
Make sure you're believing in Christ. But if, but if that's what took place in your heart between you and God, then there is strong assurance there for you to claim. And the way of God, the way to God is open to you. One of the commentaries I like on various books of the New Testament is uh, by F.F. F. Bruce. And he says here that this perfect sacrifice, it was so perfect, our Lord's presentation of his life to God, that no repetition is either necessary, it's not even possible, because it was perfect. It was offered once for all. And then a devotional writer that I enjoy reading sometimes, J. Sidlow Baxter, says, the Christian's boldness to draw near does not arise from a con- conceited false estimate of the dignity of a man. It's not because you're a great person or you know, humanity is so awesome nor of a deteriorated conception of the majesty of God. It's not that God is lowering himself. It arises from knowing a glorious, divine human sin-bearer and Savior and mediator who has wrought atonement, reconciliation, and eternal redemption for us. That is a grand truth to know and to claim. And that, that relates to your initial salvation. It also relates to your ongoing walk with God. Being close to God starts positionally as you're brought into a right relationship with Him, but it also continues practically as we walk with Him day by day, as we pray, as we consciously commune with Him, as we read His Word, as we seek to serve Him, as we worship Him in song and give thanks to Him. All of that is part of our walk with God. All of that is part of being close to Him personally and subjectively day by day. And what is it that makes that possible? You being a really good Christian? No. It's His grace. It's His goodness. It's what Jesus Christ has done for you. And yes, we're to keep our lives pure and and follow Him very specifically and, and not sin and do what is right. Absolutely. But it's not our perfection, not our performance that keeps us close to Him. It's what He's done for us through Jesus Christ. So, look a little further down in chapter 10. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, and I would say brothers and sisters are included here, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. There it is, our heart and our life washed with pure water. And this exhortation is the the threshold into now, that better way to live that we'll continue talking about. So let's draw near, worship and pray and fellowship with God and grow in Christ and serve Him and walk with God now. And one day, we'll draw near and be with Him forever. Father, thank you for these precious truths. I pray they'd be imprinted on our hearts and shape our lives and help us to rejoice in them ourselves. Father, I pray for anyone here today that has never believed in Jesus as Savior, that that person would do so today. And I pray that all of us might be ready to share these truths with people around us and point them to Christ as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.